Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Dallas Campbell here. Welcome once again to another episode of Patented, my podcast all about the history of inventions and the history of science and the origins of stuff. Hey, the end is in sight. This is going to be the final episode in our little mini-series that we've been doing about the invention of forensics, which started off, well, we thought, well, let's just do an episode in forensics. That's interesting. It was so interesting, we ended up doing a whole mini-series about it. We started off in ancient China with what Wikipedia says was the first example of forensic thinking ever, which stemmed from a 12th century book called The Washing Away of Wrongs, which is my favourite title of the book ever, written by a Confucian official that covers how to detect all kinds of weird deaths and murders, everything from death by tiger bites to being prodded to death. You know, the classic ways in which we all die. Uh, After that, we ended up in London's most inaccessible museum, which, of course, I became obsessed about and fascinated by and want to visit, but can't, and neither can you. It's called the Crime Museum. It's in the basement of New Scotland Yard on the banks of the Thames. And you can't go there because only police officers are allowed there and they can look at murder weapons and other such interesting things in order to hone their detective skills to better understand the mind of the criminal. And then after that, we went to Prohibition-era America for the birth of the lie detector. You know, the lie detector, which you see in movies, which kind of measures your physiological responses to various stress tests. By the end of that episode, we decided it was a pretty dubious bit of science and a bit of technology. The problem was, of course, the the very idea of a lie detector, something that can spot someone who's lying, is so, oh, you want it to be true. You want it to be true, but unfortunately, it's a little bit dodgy. And there is a lesson to us all not to trust technology (laughs) too much when it comes to fighting crime or anything else. Uh, Anyway, today is our final episode, and it's, well, it's about a new technology or a relatively recent technology and a real game changer, if I can use that cliche, when it comes to fighting crime. And that is DNA analysis, DNA fingerprinting, no less. Invented in Leicester, there you go, here in England, by Alec Jeffries in the mid-80s, the mid-1980s, to be precise. Actually, to be really precise, at 9.05am on the 10th of September, 1984. And if you want to know why that particular time on that particular day all will be revealed in this episode. Anyway, it's gone on, of course, to revolutionise policing, not just solving crimes now, but also solving historic crimes, past crimes, cold cases, things that were put to bed because the technology to understand what happened just didn't really exist. Anyway, my guest to tell this fantastic story is none other than Cherry King, who was taught by Alec Jeffries, no less, and is now Professor of Public Engagement at Leicester University and also the in-house geneticist on the BBC TV show Family Secrets. And of course, Churi, you might know her name, was very involved in the Richard III story, finding Richard III in the car park in Leicester. Anyway, delighted to have Churi with us. Welcome, Cherry, to the show. Lovely to have you. Just in the waiting room there, we were talking about Danny Dyer and that programme he did. What was it? And he was related to the royal family. I can't remember which bit of the royal family he was related to. Well, OK. So genealogically, they managed to trace him back to, I think, Edward III. But... But... 
and I can tell you this <laughs> as a geneticist and having done lots of genealogy, is that the chances of, of somebody with broadly British ancestry not being descended from Edward III is a pretty tiny number. And this was actually calculated by a friend of mine, Adam Rutherford and Hannah. They did a kind of Hannah Fry. They did a back of an envelope calculation mm. and they worked out that the chances of somebody not being descended from Edward III is some teeny tiny number. Can I tell you something? My funny story is just to show you how ahead of the curve I am in terms of coming up with TV show ideas. And I know you do DNA family secrets on the BBC. And, of, you know, who do you think you are? It's obviously a big kind of genetics, has a, a genetic element. So we're, we're kind of fascinated by that. I had an idea, given that we're all, everyone on earth is connected all the way back to the last universal common ancestor, I guess, maybe. I, don't, I know nothing. <laughs> well, in Europe, it's around a thousand years ago. Okay, well, there we go. I... I had, a, I had a TV series idea, a comedy series idea, where basically each week I was going to try and do an impossible thing. And then at the end of the episode, you'd understand why I can't do the thing. And we tried to break the men's 100 metres record and I tried to journey to the centre of the earth. It was a good series. It's fun. It's called Dallas and Wonderland. Uh-huh. Anyway, the proto episode, the kind of first episode, I was like, I'm going to try and meet the Queen. Okay. Given that it's probably impossible to meet the Queen, how would I do it? And we do all the things, like we do the story of, you know, Michael Fagan who broke into Buckingham Palace. And we tried, <laughs> we explored all the different avenues that one might be able to meet the Queen. I even got into Royal Ascot with a top hat, with a, no. with a camera in, like that Simpsons episode. It was, this was a long <laughs> time ago by the way before mobile phones and we did that and then I thought well given that we're all kind of must be all related somehow I must be related to the queen somehow and I went to a genealogist and it turns out that I'm related to just like Danny Dyer and everyone else so I kind of then I went to Buckingham Palace and said I'm the queen's cousin 58 times removed or whatever it was (laughs) and then they turned me away to great hilarity (laughs) yes we're all related to the queen we're all related to each other I can imagine you getting lots and lots of emails. It's funny. (laughs) I have this theory. It's not my theory. It has occurred to me that wherever you are in science, like if you're a geneticist or if you are a planetary scientist, whatever it is you are, there is an associated kind of conspiracy theory that goes associated with it or kind of nonsense theory (laughs) that kind of goes with it. And I'm just wondering, you must get a lot of crazy emails. Given that you also have a BBC One show as well. So that's kind of amplified your presence oh so- definitely <laughs> well it, it started before obviously i mean as soon as i started doing anything in terms of sort of around genetic genealogy richard iii really kicked it off there's lots of stuff we thought i should point out him. by the way turi <laughs> is listeners will be aware of the fact that they found richard iii in a car park his skeleton yes. in a car park and turi you did the analysis i did the, of this. G- I did the yeah. dna yeah and the statistical thing. analysis it was and um the <laughs> number of people who have said ah oh, but it's not actually Richard, there was somebody who came on who decided that the person that we'd found was actually Richard's twin brother that people didn't know about. <laughs> Things like that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we love to have, you know, what is it? We love, the truth just is never enough, is it? Is We've always got to come up with some like bonkers explanation and there'll be some conspiracy that they are hiding and all that kind yeah. of Yeah. Oh, I get people who, who want me to do their DNA because they want me to prove that they are the true heir. And that if I explain about how DNA is inherited and about how it's not necessarily going to help them for their particular case, they think I'm part of a wider conspiracy to deny them their birthright. And it's very, very difficult because how do you deal Mm -hmm. with that? So I just try to be as polite and as nice as possible, but just explain the science. Uh, Well, there you go. And that's what we're going to do now. I'm psychic, actually, and this is a skill that I have. (laughs) Uh, And I can psychically tell that my producer, Charlotte, is willing me off stage to get on with it. (laughs) So uh, that's what I'm going to do. Sorry, Charlotte, I can... I can, yeah, I'm going to do it now. Let's do a little bit of science. I tell you what, let's unpack some of the science and then we'll Mm. get into the subject, which is DNA fingerprinting and where it came from and how powerful a tool it is, et cetera, et cetera. So let's start, if we're talking about DNA fingerprinting, let's start with the DNA bit. Yeah. I mean, everyone's heard of DNA. Very briefly, in a nutshell, for those who need a bit of a catch up, deoxyribonucleic acid. That's right. We all have it. It is. Everything has it. So it is essentially, I mean, we often describe it as sort of an instruction manual to sort of build a human, maintain a human, and to make little baby humans. And it's something where not all of it is coding for proteins, but basically genes are bits of our DNA that code for proteins that are made in our body to help our body do what it needs to do. 
And we understand things like evolution and natural selection by looking at DNA. And, and this is how we do genealogy through sort of looking at DNA, et cetera, et cetera. And also things like hereditary diseases, for example, mm. we can look at DNA. But in terms of fingerprinting, in terms of forensics, because this is a relatively new thing. And when we say DNA fingerprinting, we ha- we've had fingerprint recognition for a long time. We all have identical fingerprints. First of all, how does it work? And then we'll, under- then we'll do a little bit of the history. So explain how yeah. we can tell that I was in a room by my DNA. Okay. So DNA fingerprinting was basically invented in 1984. So it was the 10th of September, 1984, when apparently... Suspicious. 1984, eh? 1984. <laughs> <laughs> so Alec Jeffries comes in on the Monday morning. Who's and Alec Jeffries? So Alec Jeffries is the guy who invented DNA fingerprinting. See, that's a good invention. Like, you'd be that, happy if you invented that. And do you want to know what? He still hasn't won a Nobel Prize for this. What? I always find this kind of staggering. So Alex Jeffries, and where are we? Where in the world are we? We are at the University of Leicester. And My was, old university. There that's we right. <laughs> and your and university. That's right. And he comes into the genetics department. And what he has been trying to do is look at genetic variation. So variation between people. So prior to this, I mean, in the 1970s, I mean, we know that you get different versions of different of the same protein. And so people were going, okay, so we know that... Our DNA. What do you mean different versions of the same protein? So you will have a protein that, so blood types is a really good one. Okay. So you get proteins that are involved in making different types of blood types. And what we know is that there's different blood types. Yeah. So there's something, something underlying that that must cause those differences. And they knew it must be in the DNA. But they're like, what is this variation? So you know our DNA looks a little bit like... We kind of describe it as being like a book, but there's only four letters in our alphabet. So the G, C, T, and A that you often see, yeah, that you often see on the news and the television. So adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. Those are the four main building blocks. Yeah, (laughs) we just use A, C, T, and G because it's like we're never going to say that. (laughs) Apart from you, yeah, (laughs) but you know, maybe a couple of other people. Uh, so yes, ACG is so your big long yeah. letters. So we knew that. Okay, so maybe there's like a single letter difference that's going on in the gene. We don't. So at, in the 1970s, they're aware they're they're starting to work out that there's genetic variability. They know there must be, and they're starting to be able to zoom in on what that is. So originally, they start finding these single letter differences. So it's so like, can I just can I yeah. just interrupt? So genetic differences between something like you and me, for yeah. example. Yeah. Okay. Even though we're related in that we're both humans. Yeah. So nine over 99 percent of our DNA is the same. Okay. But we have got these tiny differences between us. And the first differences they started to find were these single letter differences. So it's like you and I have got the same sort of paragraphs in our books, Mm -hmm. but I might have one letter different than you. And that makes a difference in the protein. I think it's a missing apostrophe that patterns get really cross about. <laughs> oh, we know, don't do punctuation. Your your. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Don't go there. <laughs> Sorry. So that was kind of the original stuff that they were looking at. And then they're thinking, well, okay, but actually, where are areas of the genome, our, our DNA, that are more variable? And that's what Alec was looking at. And he found what are known as mini satellites. And the reason why they're called that is when they used to centrifuge DNA down, you would get like this little sort of band that was a slightly different kind of weight than the rest of the DNA. And in that, they found that there were lots and lots of repeated bits of DNA. It's like a stutter. So it's like a word that's, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 letters long that's repeated, that's stuttered a number of times. And the number of stutters that you have will be different from me. And because you inherit DNA from your mom and some from your dad, if you're going to look at a little particular, let's go and have a look at that paragraph. And you're going to have, say, 10 repeats from your dad in that paragraph. And then you've got to look at the repeats that you got from your mom. You might have 15. Mm-hmm. So it's like looking at the same paragraph in two different books because you've mm-hmm. got one book from mom and one mm-hmm. book from dad. You've got half your DNA from each of them. And I might have, I don't know, 12 and 20 or something like that. So already we're finding differences between us. And if we look at enough of those markers, so we where you get a bit of genetic difference between individuals is known as a genetic marker. We know it tends to mm-hmm. differ between individuals. Mm-hmm. Then you will start to find that there's lots and lots of differences between individuals. The more of those markers you do, the more you start to go, okay, I can really differentiate these people out. 
So the word fingerprint, when we talk about DNA fingerprinting, we are meaning in the, in the way that everyone has a unique fingerprint. Yeah, well, not everyone so Everyone has not... a unique kind of DNA. Everyone's we all have unique. Are a bit yeah, that's right. Everyone's, everyone's DNA is different, even identical twins. Hence, it's useful for identification. Yeah. So that's what he basically found was that he could look at these stutters in the DNA. And the more stutters you look at, the more you start to be able to differentiate people out. So if you've got, say, 10 and 15, it might be that if you go and look at a thousand people or something like mm -hmm. that, 10 of them have got 10 and 15. Okay, so how do you start to distinguish those 10 people out? You'd look at another one of those markers and go, okay, well, these guys have got 10 to 15, but they've also got, I don't know, 30 and 35 on this marker and somebody might have. So you start to differentiate people out into smaller and smaller groups until you get to something where the chance of somebody having the same fingerprint as you is one in a billion. That's really interesting. Okay, Alex Jeffries walks into his laboratory in 1984. Do we have a date? Yeah, so 9.05 on the 10th of September, 1984. 9.05 a.m., mm -hmm. nice. That's specific. I like that. And he wasn't doing this, he wasn't running this experiment because he wanted to, he was trying to invent something. He was doing no. something, he was looking at genetic variation. Yeah. What did he see? And when the penny dropped, what happened? So he was looking at what's known as an autoradiograph, which basically is a, a piece of x-ray film. So what he had been doing was he had been taking the DNA of one of the technicians in the lab, her mom and her dad, but he'd also done things like, you know, tobacco and cow and pig and stuff like that. And what he'd done was he'd taken their DNA, he had chopped it up into little bits, and then what he's doing is he's attaching what's known as a radioactive probe that will, will look for those repeats and Painful. attach to it. Yes, <laughs> And then what you do is you, well, what you've done is you've cut the DNA up into little pieces. You then do what's known as running it on a gel. It basically separates out the DNA into sizes of those fragments that you've just chopped it up into. And then they, he attaches a radioactive probe to those fragments of DNA. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit, that probe is going to stick where it finds those repeats. So it's going to be different sizes for different people, depending on okay. how many repeats they've got. got it. Essentially, think of those barcodes that you get on, you know, when you go into your shopping and you scan yeah. the little barcodes, that's what it looks like in the end. Okay. And everyone's like going to have their individual little barcode. And what he saw was he, he was looking at, it was Jenny Foxen, who's lovely. She's retired now. It was her DNA and her mom's and her dad's. And he was looking at her DNA and going, oh my goodness. So the bands, she's getting half of these bands. That's where the DNA is. The probe is sticking and making that little black kind of line. Half of the black lines were kind of coming from her mom and half the black lines were coming from her dad. And that makes sense because you get half your DNA from each of them. So he realized that her DNA fingerprint was unique to her. It was a mixture of that of her parents who also had their own unique DNA fingerprints. So he could tell people apart, but he could also tell relatedness. And that was amazing. So within... So no, no, to, to, no one at had this done point that in history, no one had done no. that. No one had said, we can look at someone's DNA and tell them... So this is like, like before this. the Jerry Springer show no. and, uh, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like we've done the paternity test. That just didn't exist. No. So the first thing, interestingly enough, was an immigration case, which was actually a maternity test, which is unusual. So what... Can I just, yeah. before we get onto that, when Alex sort of was looking at his experiment for something else, did he have a moment where he thought, holy crap, yes. <laughs> the, the implications of this yeah, well, so are enormous in terms of A, solving crime, which is what we're interested here, in terms of forensics and, and also paternity and ancestry yeah. and that kind of thing. So apparently what happened was he was looking at it going, I mean, if you have a look at the original autoradiograph, it's online. He just thought, oh my goodness, what a smudgy, horrible mess. And then he says the penny dropped and he could see that each person had their own individual fingerprint and that you could see relatedness. And apparently within hours, he and his team were going, well, what could we use this for? So forensics, paternity testing. And interestingly enough, he went home that evening and his wife said immigration cases. So, and that was ended up being the very first case. That's yeah. really, I mean, honestly, that it's, it's a real, I mean, it's in the world of inventions, it's massive. Yeah. yeah. Well, so the interesting thing is apparently that day, what he did was he, because people had no idea, you know, how long is blood going to last? So what he's doing is he's turning mm. himself into a pin cushion and he's like yes. smearing himself around the lab and going, how long can we have blood sitting there and still get DNA out that 
that's usable. So they started doing all these little experiments with that. And they were finding that they could use this, they could use DNA that was, you know, these blood stains that were several days old, and they're totally fine. And they're able to do this kind of thing. Well, I mean, I suppose the case that's it, the thing that's I sort of remember from this was there was a, a murder case in, in Leicestershire. Yeah. There were two women separate, I think sort of early 80s, mid 80s, that they'd been raped and, and murdered. Yeah. And DNA fingerprinting was used in this particular case for the first time, wasn't it? But it was quite interesting because it wasn't like, well, they did convict someone eventually, but they actually, somebody had confessed mm. to the second killing yep. and they used this for the first time to actually prove that this person hadn't done it. Yeah. So, I think, am I getting that no, right? No, you're, to- you're totally right. So the first time DNA fingerprinting was ever used was actually an immigration case. But the first time it was used in a, was forensically was this, these cases. So 1983, 15-year-old Linda Mann is raped and murdered in a village just outside of Leicester. And at the time, what they're able to do is they can do blood typing, that kind of thing. And they get it down to the fact that it's probably a man who's it's about 10% of the population has got this kind of particular makeup. But that's all they can do at that point. So when this first girl was killed, they weren't able to use DNA. It wasn't invented at that point. No. But then there was another rape and murder in 1986. So this is Dawn Ashworth, who again was a 15-year-old girl, again raped and murdered. And a lad called Richard Buckland seemed to know a fair bit about Dawn and where she might be found. So they brought him in and under questioning, he confessed to Dawn's murder, but not to Linda's. And so David Baker, who was the chief constable at the time, had seen this immigration case had gone out in the press and he thought, well, heck, we can get down from this being someone who's 10% of the population down to one individual. So he contacted Alec and said, look, could you do the DNA analysis on Linda? We think this chap has killed Dawn and Linda. Can you do Linda just to prove that it has killed her? So it got DNA from Richard Buckland and then had the samples from Linda. And Alec had to ring David up at apparently at some ungodly hour and say he didn't kill her. And so David went, oh my goodness, okay, we better make sure that he hasn't that, you know, has he actually killed Dawn? So then Alec does Dawn's sample and Richard Buckland hasn't killed her either. So the f- And were they, were they at this point, because it's still a new technology, were they 100% sure? That, so I think... And, and had, had they persuaded the authorities that this technology was 100% accurate? Well, I think at the time they were all kind of going, this is the first time we're ever using this in a forensic yeah. case. And yeah, so I think exactly. everyone's a little bit nervous. But I mean, it's pretty mm. conclusive when it comes back that this is this, mm. it can't have been him. So this was both good news and and bad news. First of all, the first time it's used in a forensic case is actually to exonerate somebody. So this person is set free. He almost certainly would still be in jail if it if without DNA fingerprinting. So good news, you know, we've managed to let this person go free, and we now know the fingerprint of the killer. Unfortunately, he's still out there. So what David did was he had a real brainwave. Was he decided okay? He'd heard of a case where they had used fingerprints, so finger marks. There had been a case where there had been a crime committed and they had the fingerprint. And what they did was they had men come and, you know, they would take their fingerprints. So he thought, well, why can't we do this with DNA as well? So it was the first kind of DNA dragnet. And it started in January 1987. And they basically wrote to everybody who were in these villages nearby to where the murders had taken place and invited them to do a blood test. And there's a twist. If you're the murderer, (laughs) why would you... Yeah. And why would you say, okay, I'll come along? Because the well, first thing you're going to do is like run away, presumably. Exactly. And David knew that this was a possibility. Um, he's just hoping that this is going to flush out the killer. And there's a twist in the story to it because, quite rightly, as you can imagine, that the chap who did uh, commit the crimes is a chap called Colin Pitchfork. And he convinced one of his colleagues at work to go and take the blood test for him. He, you know, he said, look, I was done for flashing years ago. I don't want the police to find me. And then he said, look, I've done this for a friend already and I can't go and do it. Was it it a compulsory blood test then? Well, they were invited. People were invited. But obviously, you know, the police are going to start to really look at somebody who's not taken a blood test. And they're like, why haven't you come? Oh, I see. Oh, I see. That's interesting. 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 I mean, they even sent out people to go and do blood tests to people who'd moved from the area. I mean, it was a massive, massive operation. Right. And so this chap called Ian Kelly eventually went and gave the blood test for Colin Pitchfork. 
And rather prophetically, David said in an interview in the summertime, they still hadn't caught, they had done thousands of men, they said that somebody knows what's happened. We need somebody to let slip some information. And what he hadn't realized was that actually that had already happened. So Ian Kelly uh, worked at the same bakery as Colin Pitchfork and had been out with friends for lunch and let slip that he had taken the DNA test for Colin. And one of the group there kind of realized the implications of this and got in contact with the police who then immediately knew what this meant and went and knocked on the doors of Colin Pitchfork and Ian the next morning. And apparently even as the police were arresting Colin, he was admitting to the crimes. Yeah. (laughs) So even before they'd done the the sort of test on him, he he realised the game was up. I'm interested because if like DNA fingerprinting didn't really exist up to this point... And you're a criminal, or you've done something to. Why would you be? Why would you sort of be so scared of it? I suppose, or so. I think. Why would you? I think there'd been enough in the news about it. So the, I mean, David Baker had been really good with this. They had, and the press had really gotten around it. So Lester Mercury had really gotten behind it. There was a local businessman, the man who owns Next, George mm. Davies, had put up a reward for it. So it was really mm-hmm. in the press. I mean, it, it made international news that this DNA yeah. dragnet was going on. So I think Colin Pitchfork. I mean, obviously I can't speak for him, but I, I'm guessing he would have understood that the game was up and that the minute they take a DNA yeah. test, they're going to realise it's him. That's amazing. And so we can use DNA kind of retrospectively now because mm. of cold cases. So just from a science question, how long does someone's DNA... I mean, obviously, something like Richard III, he's getting on a bit. He is. <laughs> <laughs> it depe- In his car well, park. So, I mean, they've managed to get I mean, DNA from 1.6 million-year-old mammoths. Crikey. So that's because they were found in permafrost. So de- And mummies, of mummies. course. Yeah. Yeah. It really depends on the conditions. So cold and dry is best for preserving DNA, which is why they've managed to get DNA out of these 1.6 million-year-old mammoths. And obviously DNA technology has moved on a lot since then. So exactly the sort of thing that we use for DNA family secrets is the sort of thing that's now used to catch criminals retrospectively or in in cases because we do exactly what we do in DNA family secrets and that allows us to narrow down on individuals Mm. without even using DNA fingerprinting. So all kind of DNA science or DNA sort of forensics, genealogy, that kind of stuff, paternity, we can trace it all the way back to Leicester University to 9.05 a.m., 1984, which date? I can't Tenth remember. 10th of September. 10th of September. <laughs> that is, it, it, it's funny because it, we, I suppose we just take it so much for granted. We hear so much about DNA and forensics and everything else and ice mummies DNA and like you say, mammoths and paternity yeah. tests and TV shows. It's so much a part of our life. Yeah, and it taps into something important because we are just sort of fascinated by ourselves mm. and we want to know where we go. I mean, I, I remember doing a TV show and we did one and... You know, apparently I invented farming thousands of years ago. Oh, don't. My, my, you know, one of those, I can't remember. Or I, I can't quite, it was something like that. Yeah. Or I invented there, something. There were some. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's a question. Can we use it for dodgy things? Basically, you know, if, if it's 100% effective, fine. But are we opening doors perhaps we shouldn't open? Are we pulling the wool over people's eyes? Are we giving them information that perhaps we don't really need to give them or shouldn't give them well okay so it's in i mean i suppose oh god there's various things with that but in terms of things like dna family secrets i mean it is something where i get people who email me and they say look me and my siblings we all took dna tests for christmas and i've just found out that i'm not a full sibling with my Mm, others well exactly and that is needless to say something which can be a it's a real shock to Mm. to people and there can be quite emotionally very heavy things that are going on there and one of the things that we don't shy away from in dna family secrets is kind of the real emotional side of it and the fact that sometimes you cannot give full answers or the answers that you get are not what you expected well that's the thing it's you know we all have skeletons in cupboards but the fact yeah. that you can now take that skeleton out and do a dna test on yes. it and actually go look skeleton yeah, yeah. it's yours yeah. is um sometimes skeletons <laughs> maybe should be just left in cupboards well, it's, so all the people obviously who come to us want to know and so one of our things is first of all do you have support behind you and obviously one of the things we have on dna family secrets is that we've got you know counselors and social workers and all sorts of of support in the background that people don't necessarily have if they're doing these tests yeah. just themselves yeah, of course of course and we kind of take them through the entire process but we do warn them about this is what you may or you know you may not find what you're expecting 
and to just kind of lay the groundwork for that and be there for them. I mean, that is one of the things when I'm giving people the results, I can see it's who they are sort of shifting, like, and I can see it happening mm -hmm. right in front of my eyes. And I can, I mm -hmm. really feel the weight of what I'm doing. And it's very emotional. I mean, often they're in tears. I'm in tears. The production team's in tears. It's really heavy stuff sometimes. Well, yeah, you are changing lives. You are altering people's perception of themselves yeah. and their environment and their families and their medical histories mm. and all these things which are incredibly personal powerful and, and powerful. Personal. Yeah. I can imagine that would be a burden. Listen, we're almost out of time. I just want to ask you just to sort of round off what the kind of future is for this. Are we sort of heading to some kind of minority report kind of <laughs> world of like, we, you know, I don't know, you know, what further thing in genetics are we going to discover that's going to make well, things even more kind of... So we're definitely moving towards things like whole genome sequencing. So at the moment, the DNA testing companies, they don't look at your entire DNA. They look at sort of little windows on your DNA, several hundred thousand of them, but little windows on your DNA. One of the interesting things I found last year when I was doing the publicity for the first season of DNA Family Secrets was as soon as they found out that I'd done Richard III, they were asking me all sorts of questions like, will you be able to tell if he was a bad person? And I had to go, no, <laughs> because we are not just our DNA. Our DNA, it's something, we are a mixture of our DNA and our environment. So it's everything from, you know, when you're born, what was your environment like when you're growing up? What are you eating? How much exercise are you getting? All this kind of stuff. It's, it's so many different things that affect who we are. You can't look at somebody's DNA and say that they're a good person or a bad person. There are people who are looking at things like propensity towards aggression. And there do seem to be little sections of our DNA that do seem to be associated with and that's a really important word associated with it's not causal seems to be associated we don't know quite what the interactions are so there's a lot of research going into this but it was really annoying because the headline was dna analysis will show whether or not richard iii was a good king or a bad thing and i had to go back up back up back up and that's not what i said <laughs> <laughs> and i think if there's one thing that i could get across to people is that we are not our dna we are a mixture of our DNA and everything that's happened to us and choices that we make and all sorts of things. So it's it's not deterministic. And I think that was kind of important. Terry, listen, thank you so much for chatting to me today. I've really, no really problem. enjoyed enjoyed our chat, as I always do. It's lovely to see you again. Nice and, to see and you. In terms of things that you're doing coming up, more DNA secrets, what's the... I'm not allowed to say the, yet. Oh, yeah, Really? take that as a yes <laughs> it's a really interesting series it's, and i love it's it it's a great series because it's great stories as you say yeah. it's this window onto onto stories and, and, and we love that but listen Terry, fantastic to talk to you thank you very very much no problem for joining me on the show okay stay tuned after the ad break for an interview with a real life bona fide forensic scientist where we shall share some final thoughts some end notes to round off this little mini series of ours hi there i'm kate lister sex historian and author and i am the host of betwixt the sheets the history of sex scandal in society a new podcast from history hit join me as i root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, before saying goodbye to forensics, for now at least, I want to have a little catch-up talk to an actual forensic scientist just to really find out about forensics today, how it began, where it could be heading in the future. So we've called up one of the best, of course, Neve Nick Dade, who is the head of the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science in Dundee. It was one of those things we were going to, let's do an episode on forensic science. And then annoyingly, forensic science was so interesting that we had to extend it into a little mini-series. We started a long time ago. We started with this book, which is now my favourite book. It's called The Washing Away of Wrongs. Have you come across this? I have, indeed. Does every forensic scientist know about this book? Because I'd never heard of it. I don't think, actually, that they do. Because one of the things that I think we don't do well enough, actually, within our own professional areas of expertise is explore our history. And of course, this book goes back many, many hundreds of years. And so it's not a text that I think many students come across, which is a shame. I'm fascinated by the history of science. And for listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, it's a book. It's called The Washing Away of Wrongs by Sung Si. Is that how I pronounce it? 12th century China. And it's it's the kind of the origin, the sort of first acknowledged origins of forensic science as a, as a discipline. I'm, there's probably older ones, I know, but... It's one of the sort of foundational ideas that, that occurred. Yeah. And, and historically, it was one of the places where a first link was made, an investigative link was made between the behaviour of an insect and the finding of particular type of evidence, which was blood in this case on a sickle. We've done an episode on it, dear listener, by the way. I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead for our listeners. Go back and listen to this episode and then come back to this episode and you'll know <laughs> we'll know what we're talking about. Well, you know, the, the, the famous story in this book from 12th century China is, is a, a sickle had blood on it and the flies collected on the sickle and lo and behold, we got the murderer from, from that bit of evidence. Is there, is there no, there's no escape for criminals now, is there? I mean, I think, I think about that bit of forensic science and where we are now, the kind of technology and the things that we can do, you know, crikey, DNA evidence and being able to look at historic crimes with new technology. Is there, is there such a thing as a perfect crime where somebody could, do you think, could totally get away with it if they're right? Like, wear gloves, don't put blood anywhere, don't shed any DNA, don't walk in front of a camera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm asking for a friend, by the way, I'm not asking. <laughs> I'm not planning on... I'm not planning on as a forensic scientist, I would say, I would say, of course, there's there's no perfect crime. I think that you're right in all that you say. The development of technology has seen such uh, huge opportunities appear for the detection of crime, and in particular, associating individuals with potential criminal activity. But it comes with a consequence. Uh, and the consequence is that we begin to understand what we don't know and some of the, the real essences and the real important areas of finding traces of people's activity in, in, in an alleged crime is how did the traces get there? 
And that uh, fundamentally is about how do materials transfer between each other. So whether it's DNA or whether it's blood or whatever it might be, how did the trace that we find get to where it was and what activity caused it to be there? So let me give you an example. If we find DNA from uh, person A on a knife that was used to stab person B, well, that DNA might mean nothing if the person A lives with person B and would have handled the knife anyway. So it only becomes relevant if we put it in context. And that's, that's the really important aspect of what forensic practitioners will do. I worry about that because I think sometimes in our modern age, we forget about context. We, we like to jump to conclusions and our implicit cognitive biases leap in and we make all kinds of assumptions. I imagine, and am I right in thinking there's a kind of dance between the forensic scientists, the legal department and technologists? I'm not so sure I would call it a, a dance. We all know what our different roles are within the course of an investigation. And the role of the scientist is not to be an investigator. The role of the scientist is to do the analysis on the things that are recovered from scenes or individuals and to undertake that analysis as best we can, to understand the relationship between the things that we're examining. And again, as I said, the, the case context. And it's really for the prosecutors so the lawyers and the defenders, also the lawyers, to be able to put our evidence into a particular framework of circumstances, which is the whole of the case framework, which many circumstances the scientists might not see. Yes. The other thing that I'm always amazed by is just, you know, people have obviously heard of fingerprinting and stuff, but I have a friend who's a forensic scientist in Italy, and she, she does things like she puts clothes underwater in order to see how barnacles attach themselves to them. She uses barnacles like a kind of time machine because barnacles behave in a particular way. And I, I just hear these amazing stories. I'm like, crikey, you guys are a creative bunch. <laughs> We, we are. I have to say, I haven't come across barnacles as evidence before, oh, so I'm, I'm going to pass on that one. Um, oh, you'd, but... you'd like, it's re- it was really interesting. It's a talk. I, I, she gave a talk and I was like, oh my God, she puts like shoes and clothes and all different things underwater and then sees how barnacles attach th- and other crustaceans, you know, they, mm-hmm. they kind of colonise on the evidence and you can tell all kinds of stuff. Uh, absolutely. I mean, forensic scientists, I think, are creative. We have to be very imaginative in one sense in the questions that sometimes we're asked, like your, your colleague and friend has been, has been asked about clearly. But fundamentally what we do, if we want to explore those areas of potential usefulness uh, to us, fundamentally what we are as scientists. And so we would conduct research like your, your friend and colleague is doing in a way that tests the, those hypotheses of what can the barnacles provide for us, but research them in a way that the information we get from them is robustly tested. And that's really important because ultimately, if we're going to use those kind of materials as evidence in a court case, then we have to have confidence that we know the limitations as well as the opportunities that those types of evidence will will provide so that the judiciary uh, can make a decision as to whether or not such evidence should be admitted into the courts in the first place. I suppose it goes into how we communicate science more generally. There is no right and wrong. There is no black and white. Science is about uncertainty and about and about the best evidence that comes in which changes over time. And I think very often people don't really realise that that's kind of how science works. I'm just... Just the way that you've been talking now, the scientific principles or the scientific methods seems to be very embedded within forensic science. I, I did some work with some Egyptologists a few years ago, and we, you know, we were looking at mummies and the fact that you can kind of extract DNA from mummies. I know it's slightly controversial, and I'm just always blown away by the incredible science that gets done. No, absolutely, and, and I think the advent of DNA technology really changed the way in which science could be used within criminal investigations, very much so. But it's also brought unintended consequences. So back in the 1980s, you would need a blood stain about the size of an old 50 pence piece to get a DNA profile from it. So now we can get a DNA profile from a single cell. So you don't even have to see the DNA to be able to recover it. Crikey. So you just need a single cell? Yeah, yeah. You can recover it from a single cell. But of course, the unintended consequences of that are that if I take a swab, of a surface like my desk or handlebars of a bicycle or whatever it might be, then the DNA that I'm capable of recovering no longer may be from a single person. It may be from more than one person. And because we don't always know how long DNA persists for, that DNA recovery may involve DNA that's much older than other DNA that's within or on the item. And so we end up with mixed profiles, so lots of 
people's DNA on the swab that we've recovered from our crime scene or wherever it might be. And suddenly it becomes a problem of how, well, how do we unmix it? How do we declutter that, deconvolute it, we would say? And that then comes down to a matter of mathematics. And so we use mathematical models to try to unpick what those DNA profiles might be. And often the mathematical models make assumptions. Different mathematical models will make different assumptions, which means that we're now in a situation where we can put the same evidence, the mixed DNA profile, into two different black boxes that contain the mathematics and get two different sets of answers. And that becomes hugely problematic for the courts. All models are wrong, but some are useful. (laughs) Well, the courts, quite rightly, demand transparency of the models because this is a matter for justice. So we need to be able to explain and show everything that we're doing in a transparent way. And if you're using commercial black box models to do the unmixing or to do the mathematics, then we have a problem because we can't, we can no longer transparently see what's being done. You've got to be good at everything being a forensic scientist. It's one of those things that's like, you know, it's a broad church, I suppose. How much, how much do you think that the sort of our fascination with forensic science and perhaps the reason you got into it is down to the fact that it satisfies our story brains? You know, humans like stories and, and forensic science has been such a staple of novelists and filmmakers <laughs> and, and artists from Agatha Christie to CSI Miami. We like the idea of a, a whodunit and we like to piece together in our minds, follow the clues and follow the breadcrumbs and come up with a conclusion. There is something inherently satisfying about that. I agree. And, and looking at, you know, how science is made visible, then the use of science in, in the solving of murder mysteries is a fantastic way of bringing that science alive and bringing what it can do alive. But it also has the potential to lead to perhaps misconceptions or expectations that the science just simply can't live up to. And, you know, the, the crime writing, the novels, the, the TV series are really good at doing what they're doing, which is satisfying that narrative request and, and solving the puzzle and making us really think about things. But they're, they, they do what they need to do very, very well, which is provide entertainment. And it's not always... They don't do the science very well <laughs> in, in terms of the statistical modelling and Bayesian analysis. I think, I, think, I think some are better than others. Let's put it that way. And tell me a good one and tell me a bad one. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> Do you, you must watch CSI, or you must have, when CSI was big a few years ago, everyone was like... I'm not, not a big fan, I have to say. Really? Of, of any of them. They do what they, what they need to do. They're fantastic entertainment. I think some of the, of the writers of, of crime fiction work really hard to get the science as accurate as they can, and we work with some writers that are really invested in trying to get that science right. But other times it's a little bit more fanciful, shall we say. Let's talk about the future and a bit of crystal ball gazing. In the 1980s, we talked about the the advent of DNA analysis. And obviously, that's still getting better and better and better. It's not like, we discovered DNA analysis, that's it. It's still becoming honed, as you described. Where, where, Where are you guys heading? What's exciting you in the future? I know you've done some stuff with virtual reality and constructing virtual crime scenes. Is that going to be a game changer in the way that DNA analysis has been a game changer, having, you know, completely virtual digital crime scenes that people can investigate? I think there are a number of things that are, when you cast our our eyes into the future, one is around what the changes in society that are happening. And and you mentioned it quite correctly around digital. We're in the digital revolution now. We're in the the sort of fourth of these great ages uh, of change across humanity from the Renaissance up to the current period of time. And that presents great challenges, but also great opportunities. We need to be a lot better I think, at working out how we deal with digital evidence because of the volume of the information, because of the need to gather that information in an ethical way, in a way that protects human rights, uh, but also in a way that secures it, that enables that digital evidence to be properly searched and triaged, so to give true equality of arms so the defence can see what the prosecution sees and so on. So there's a lot of work in there that needs to be done around just dealing with that type of evidence. And digital evidence isn't just your mobile phone. It encompasses the digital footprint that you leave everywhere you go now. So how your phones and all of your other interconnected devices ping off everything that you walk past. So it's about devices that you wear. It's about how you interact with Internet of Things and so on and so forth. So there's a, there's a really big piece of work that has great investigative advantages but also has to be done in a way that's measured, that is ethical and protects people's human rights. There are other things where, around the bit of work with virtual reality, where we we need to, I think, in my view at least, use technology in a way that 
isn't just used because it's the next great thing or the next most interesting thing or the next shiny glitter ball. It needs to be put into a context within the criminal justice system that provides that criminal justice system with an assurance that it isn't going to be biasing people's view in any way, that it's robust, that it's scientifically underpinned, that it has all of these limitations understood prior to putting it in front of a jury. Because these tools, like virtual reality, are really powerful. And so we have to treat them with great respect, I think, when we're introducing them into the justice space. God, it's so interesting. If I could go back in time and do it all again, I think I'd be a forensic scientist. Neve, thank you so much for, for joining us on the show. We've come a long way, I think, about songs from bloody sickles through to forensic digital phone analysis. I wonder what he would thought if he could see the world now, just how bewilderingly complicated the world is. And yet the kind of philosophy remains the same, doesn't it, in a way? The blood on a bloody sickle attracting flies. Uh, you know, that's it. It's all about transfer, persistence and context. That's the critical thing. Transfer, persistence, persistence and, and context. context. Yeah. If you remember one thing, ladies and gentlemen, from our chat today, remember that. Neve, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. So there we go. We're going to say a fond farewell to forensics for now. Of course, if we come up with another forensic idea, I'm sure we'll do it. We'd also, as ever, love to know your ideas. If you've got a story you'd like me to cover or investigate or think about. As I said before, we are a broad church. Science, technology... Anything else you fancy, to be honest, um, we love to discover the origins of things and the invention of things and uncover those interesting stories. So if you've got one of those, get in touch and we shall stick it on the list. Anyway, that's it from me. Thanks very much for your company and I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.